You look look right out of the sixties, man. You look groovy as hell. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, man. You're welcome. It's good to see you. It's been a while. It's been a spell. It's been a spell. Life change in the world. (laughs) Really? I haven't I haven't really noticed. Life change. A lot's changed. Well, here anyway, it has in the states. Lots changed. Yeah. You know, we have a politician who's at the top. Well, he'll soon be at the top. Um, talking about, you know, things that the current president should have been talking about, <laughs> like trying to trying to coordinate a federal response to the coronavirus pandemic, <laughs> rather than a hodgepodge. You know. 50 states, 50 different efforts approach. <laughs> what's what's you know? our response to the coronavirus? It's China's fault. Let them deal with it. Yeah, what's our yeah, what's our response? Well, here's the thing. <laughs> We're of the opinion that the ensuing economic fallout will be far worse than choking on your own yeah. amniotic fluid or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> the froth of your lungs. Yeah. Yeah, we figure we figure we figure our friends getting more money is <laughs> is worth way more than your grandmother. <laughs> that's, She's already old. It's like Jesus Christ. That's why they had that pillow guy, uh, the CEO of a pillow company, come on during one of those asinine uh, corv- like coronavirus task force meetings. They're like, "You're gonna need pillows, right?" Well, this guy. <laughs> You're going to be inside a lot, lying down. So, Pillow Man, come here and talk to us about your thread count. I get it because, like, he goes, he goes, you know, Jesus is responsible for my success. And, you know, I'd like to thank all the cherubim, you know, seraphim and shit. (laughs) You know, and it's like, well, you know, he says the right things, you know, but it's like, of course, they're going to have him on a Republican (laughs) task force. They're going to have him on. No, I'd like to just tell everybody that. Without Jesus and your support, mm. I wouldn't be here right now. Uh, <laughs> Hawking mm. pillows from the White House, from the the self lawn, from Golgotha to your home, you know. And it's like, it's like it's interesting that no one's blaming God for this coronavirus stuff, even though God does everything. I never heard anyone say, you know what, God, really, you have to. <laughs> Did you have to drown my husband in his own lung fluid? You fucked the pooch on this one, my friend. Yeah. Fuck the pooch. I, 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 you know, I always give ten percent of what I earn to your fucking <laughs> organization. Expect a little return on my investment. <laughs> like, I'm just. That's right. We should think are. about it that way. The ten percent I give you, it's an investment. I expect dividends, my friend. Expect some return. And what you give I, me is a plague. I know you make me lose my job. Yeah, I'm calling up the, I'm calling up the treasury on this one. We're gonna see what's going on up there. Get in. Yeah, uh, and you know, it's New York public schools have just shut down because there's too many coronavirus cases in the citywide system, and this is the largest public school system in the country, United States. It's just interesting. It's just a lot's changed. Lots getting. uh You know, it's weird. It's it's like you know we. Not weird. I guess this is normal. Um, 
darkest night before dawn kind of idea. You know, we have a president elect who is at least going to try, right? We have <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, Trump is just not. He's still not trying. Um. Anyway, too busy declaring he won. No, it's too and, busy facing the White House. Apparently, yeah. apparently, he's not leaving the White House except to go play golf in Virginia. <laughs> I I love it. I just imagine him pouting a lot. You, you couldn't imagine a worse dystopian like television show, right? Or like movie or book. Like you'd like it's just, and it, it's the perfect one for America, right? A reality like mm. a, a washed up businessman whose father got the money through it's like uh what's it called it's like the modern version of the great gatsby you know coming into all this money and wealth and then using all of his privilege ill-gotten privilege other than you know to to become the president of the united states and then treating it like a game show host yeah it's yeah i mean it's a good he's a good example of some of the kind of people we produce in this country you know, pathological, solipsistic, thieving perverts who <laughs> just they get they get quote unquote ahead in life because they're just willing to eat other people. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Ahead you, you they get ahead in life because they're born closer to the finish line than everyone else. If you wanna say it's some weird kind yes. of race, which the metaphor kind of falls flat on that, but we get the idea, right? You know, some of us are born Closer to, I don't know, the top of the mountain, whatever. Closer it's, to hundreds of millions. Yeah, yeah. I, man, just like the disasters that we're looking at, you know, I've been covering a bunch of uh, the stuff that's going on in South America, and you see the houses that people live in, and and, and compare it to our own lush surroundings, and you're just, it's just, sometimes it's very easy to forget that, a large portion of the world lives in much worse conditions and they live. The future is now, right? The future is now we're, we're, we're the fed chairman in the United States, the uh, federal reserve bank chairman um, declared today that we're not going back to the old economy. And what that oh. means is, is that, you know, this old <clears throat> Bretton Woods post-war new deal kind of socialism and middle class, like like uh, what do you call it, uh, the upward mobility of more and more of the population that occurred after World War II in the United States. That era is over. No more, no more employment. Like there's going to be a lot of people who are are not only going to be unemployed, but there won't be any work for them at all. They'll be unemployable, and that number is not going to shrink, but it's going to increase rapidly. Um, so this idea that so upward mobility is all will be all, but It'll be greatly, greatly reduced, right? And just a smaller and smaller population size. So what's going? What's something like will have to change? The future is now. What I mean by that is that mm. there, there's, there's a reality that is affecting hundreds of a hundred million people. Let's say just round number, and there is no policy in place to help them. And it's like yeah. geez, that's that's a nauseating position to be in. Well, I mean, I always thought. Like going back to the New Deal era might be a, a positive thing. America's got a crumbling infrastructure. Why don't we put some people to work and update, uh, you know, the roads? Update like we're we're in the twenty first century. We we have like electric cars, maybe, and, and 
high-speed internet and they're boring tunnels on the ground to shoot cars thousands of miles an hour, right? Like, why, why can't this, we... Uh... This Reagan era of... of <clears throat> deregulating corporations and yeah. um, uh, increasing the amount of taxation for the extremely wealthy, um, like basically undoing the New Deal right that took place that began to take place in the 80s and which continues apace today oh i'm sorry decide, i was mistaken decide, about what yeah, you meant by the new deal i thought we were talking about after world war ii what was that called the new deal the okay. new deal basically the new deal era was the fdr era so yeah. but their policies the policies he instituted we can broadly construe you know the fdr to reagan to uh -huh. just to do right. it as simply as possible, maybe not as accurately as possible, but certainly as simply as possible. Uh -huh. Any of that's you can broadly refer to that era as the New Deal era, but you know, it, strictly speaking, it's just FDR's administration. But sure. Anyway, um, but that you know, this idea that that for the last forty years in this country, roughly, um, the 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 elements of the United States, the American population that just wants to keep acquiring things, acquiring money, acquiring power, acquiring influence, that mm -hmm. the era of the government giving special attention to them as opposed to socialists and union people and so forth, mm -hmm. labor union, labor union members or whatever, brothers, whatever they're called. Um, sorry. Uh, you know, in this, it's hard. It's, in other words, it would have been, it was, possible to do it in the 30s because of the depression because fdr was so charismatic and powerful and labor unions had been ascendant for 30 years plus mm -hmm. nowadays it's, we've had reaganism for 40 years practically it's just it's just it's a runaway yeah. train yeah you can't i mean we're, we're being told that it's utterly impossible to raise income taxes at the federal like it's just politically impossible no one's willing to even attempt it you know what i mean it's just it's just like well, what? What by one percent? We we're not talking ninety-two. Ninety-two <laughs> percent of everything you earn over two hundred thousand dollars. No, it's it's going to be a, a plus one percent to whatever ridiculously low rate it is now. <laughs> it's, it's impossible. Can't happen. Can't raise the tax. Fucking ridiculous. Meanwhile, it's because like, of the, what are you going to do about the hundred million people or whatever who aren't going to have jobs in the next five years and can never have them again? And then on top of that, you're going to have the the second industrial revolution or whatever we're calling it, revolution industrial revolution 2.0, where all these like automation, automation, right? You, what are you going to do with all the truck drivers? Thousands and for thousands of truck drivers. For instance, for instance, yeah, you know, I I remember when I was a mover, um, and it's a we were in the truck one day, and uh, they have a lot of these guys had a lot of bravado. You know, because like they could drive a big rig, and uh, they were making fun of the idea of automating truck drivers. How are you gonna like back it up and blah 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 and all this kind of stuff? And it's just like the hubris, you know. And, and it's not really the, like I don't mean to poke fun at them and talk about their specific hubris because like what are they gonna do? They they haven't been gifted the, the best hand in life and not that it's bad to be a truck driver but I'm, I'm specifically talking about the guys that are the movers and it's just like it, yeah this is all going to change what are you going to do when you have to yeah. you're going to have a machine pump your gas well it's not going to be gas <laughs> oh yeah it's going to be something you know have you seen what robots could do 
I think pumping gas is going to be like, yeah, we, we, it'll manage. We, we just docked, automatically docked a capsule to the space center. And the astronauts, I had to cover it. The astronauts were literally sitting there in their like futuristic eye, like Apple spacesuits like this. As the spaceship just went, and we have soft, cap, uh, soft capture. Now hard capture. Everybody cheers. It's like The ship did amazing. it itself? It's automatic. Wow, that's cool. I didn't hear about that. That's pretty cool. Within millimeters. Like, that's the thing. Like, they shot it to space, and it was a 27-hour, like, trip. And they're there. You, they, they have a cockpit view of them in this Tesla of a vehicle. And and they're in their Star Trek outfits that look super white, and they're just sitting there with their... Oh, is this SpaceX? Yeah, this is SpaceX. This is the first NASA uh, oh, Elon that's... Musk trip to the moon. A trip to the moon, to the Space Center. It's, it's happening. That's wow. The future is now. That's so cool. It was super That's cool. So- it was super cool. It kind of made me, I, I'm not a big fan of Elon Musk. He, he seems kind of like an yeah, evil he's, genius in, in the making. He's, doing, he's just doing, he's just, he's trying to, he's trying to do what you know, Howard Hughes did for me. Yeah. Or Thomas Edison. You know, just extend the boundaries of the possible mm-hmm. financial asset. <laughs> He's trying to financial. do, right? Like, that's the nice thing. Like, there, there, there's ingenuity. There's, like, what, what has NASA done? It's had its budget slash. Well, yes, NASA's oh doing God. stuff, but. It wants to do everything it can, but it, mm. there's just no. That's like, what I no, mean, schools, yeah. space program, don't fund those. Give the money to fucking rich and have them fuck kids on private islands. Come on, that's that's what we're supposed to do with all this large yes. Fund our schools and our space program? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? That's not gonna get me hush money. That's not gonna get that's not gonna get me an increase in zeros in my Panamanian bank account. What? No. Space program. We need we need a we need a once in a generation genius to come over here from south africa and by hook or by crook monetize his crazy tesla-like ideas mm. you know we have and, to hope for that fuck funding it ourselves what the fuck yeah and, right and i and i would be uh doing Most a disservice to my country if i didn't mention that he is a uh, partially canadian so South African, stop. I have Give to do my job. Inside <laughs> from Mandela. Come on. Come on. They got hey, Mandela. hey, hey, hey. And Arnold Vosley. He's pretty cool, too. Sure. Arnold the, the, isn't Jack Nicholson anyway. a, the, the golfer, not the actor? Uh, isn't he South African, too? Nicholson? Nicholson? Oh, I don't know. I don't I know. I don't, I don't watch golf. Okay, much attention. I, I I got an interview him once when he came on Jeju, but that's that's all I know. Somebody asked him if he liked kimchi. One of the world's greatest golfers in the world. Right. Do you do you like do you like Jeju tangerines? <laughs> I open up this interview. The one time in my life that I'll talk to someone as amazing as you, I'd like to open up by asking, do you like kimchi chicken? <laughs> As you know, this con- our country is very unique. Then I got to go into a little speech to justify this. Yeah, well, we would, do, we would do that too. Have you tried our beaver tail? Have you tried maple syrup? Have you tried, like, it's, it's any country that's not. 
Beaver tail. America. What's that like? Have you had it before? Beaver, beaver tail? tail? It's not actually beaver. Like, it's a pastry. It's it's just oh, called beaver tail. It's in the shape of a beaver tail. <laughs> Eating a biological paddle. Like, I don't know. <laughs> or whatever Those beaver tails look like. Are, are are awful. Like, I can't imagine eating a beaver tail that would be a feat and you probably get in anger if one of those little fuckers ended up uh building a dam that ended up flooding your fucking basement knocking your water heater out you probably <laughs> cook it and eat it just in rage they're huge you know <laughs> they're huge animals they're not small right they're not these and beavers are like fascinating animals they're like the only other species on the world that like architects its environment like we do you know <laughs> yeah like they see a dry area and they're like let's put a little dot let's make this wet let's get it going um kevin mcbride is a, a comedian and uh comic actor here in america and uh he he uh he's got this excellent character i forget the character's name he started in the show called eastbound and down uh kenny powers sorry kenny powers is his name and he's just this he's a southern he's a southern he's a very humorous insensitive personage from the self and put it that way anyway so he kind of used this character in the grand theft auto 5 or one of those radio stations they have in game okay. and there's this one guy he's like an outdoorsman on a on a on a, on a rural conservative radio station on am or something mm-hmm. and he goes i like to go out into nature and and kill beavers with my bare hands i do not like the animals which fashion themselves as engineers <laughs> You just made me think of that line. <laughs> Your um, my beavers architects. are architects. <laughs> you know? My 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 life has been deprived. As I am, I just so you know, I'm I'm especially voluble today because I've the, uh, I smoked a, a legal joint uh, and uh, some of it. And, some of it was legal. Some of it wasn't. What? No, well, I had some of the joint. I didn't have the whole fucking thing. I'd be on Mars right now. Yeah. I'd be scratching myself on Mars, on the surface of Mars. Mm. Mm. Uh, it's legal now in Massachusetts. Say again? It's, ma- it's it's legal in Massachusetts now? Is that a new thing, or is that something that's been going uh, on for a while? Relatively new, within the last two years, yeah. Oh, okay. So it wasn't with, because I know a bunch of states became legal in uh, the election, right? Mm. Or... or a few of them. I can't recall which ones. It was a bunch of things that there was a little thing going on during the election that I was a little bit preoccupied with whether or not which states were getting marijuana, you know, legal. But uh. so mm. it's been it's really good to see you. It's been a month. And the reason why it's been so long is kind of because of this book, actually. <laughs> this yes. book is kind of the reason why. Um, one flew. What uh, one flew over the cuckoo's next by Ken Casey? You wanna? Shall we get into it? Let's get into it, babe. Shall we pose? Just pose. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now I got my preci. Hope it's not littered with. Incorrect words. This is a, a listener request again from our buddy Sarthak Sharma. Um, so thank you very much for this shout out. Uh, next time, uh, maybe a little bit shorter. Life's busy, and it'd be nice if it was a little bit shorter of a text. Uh, 
but I really appreciate it. It's nice to get these suggestions. And I've read this book once before. So here is my preset. I'm going to put a little bit of like maybe ER sounds in the background. Something like that. A little ambiance if I can. Not now. Post-production. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is considered a modern classic of English literature and has been included in several top hundred lists of most important, best beloved, and just simply the best English language books of the last century. The book has a following and an inspiration that is probably more to do with Jack Nicholson's rendition of the McMurphy, the book's titular character, in the 1970s film adaptation that took home like five Oscars than it does to the actual book itself. It also comes soaking in bong water wrapped in the psychedelic chord riffs of the Grateful Dead that also has less to do with the book and more to do with the man who wrote it, Ken Casey. This book was written with my father in mind, or at least for fathers of my father's age, who rebelled against the conformity of the 1950s, and I can think of, and I can't think of a book, uh, a 1960 book more, I can't think of a more 1960 book than this one. And it was written, just to be clear, in 1962. When I think mm. of all the books written, this, this really kind of encapsulates that, like, era in a lot of ways. Cassie wrote, Casey wrote it when he was 24. Mm. And it feels like that. Mm. I feel I should preface these intros with the explanation that we don't intend to give like a literary critique of these books or uh, of the articles we read. We intend to try to critique them as writers, as how they are written. I read this book much once in my teens, and I remember liking it, though I didn't remember much of it at all. The second time through was a different story. The beginning is a slog, and I feel bad saying that. I know it's a lot of readers' favorite books, a book and a stuff I wrote uh, comparable, uh, at a comparable age to Casey's is wholly unreadable, not even close to being this good. But the exposition in this dialogue is juvenile. The believability of some of the key signposts, such as McMurphy being the only character to figure out Chief can hear, and within his first day on the, on the ward to boot, is also juvenile. And frankly, the first th like two-thirds of the book are pretty boring. On this episode of Boozing Through Lit, Damn it, Harding! I told you! I'm not up on the shop talk! One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Did you finish it? No. <laughs> <laughs> did not. How far did you get? How about you? How about yeah, you? I stayed up. I woke up at five this morning to get through the end. Which is, I'm glad I did. The, the back third is good. It's entertaining. Let me just ask you then. Yeah. Is Randall Patrick McMurphy, is he a hero? Is he, is he worthy of the title of protagonist? Yeah. I mean, yeah. In the end he is, right? Like he, he gets... He, a lot, like all the a lot of people leave the ward after him. He beats, he defeats Miss Ratchet, you know. But like, it's almost a weird thing to ask because there's so many. Does he, doesn't he kind of tear a blouse open? Yeah, yes, he does. Yeah. And she mm -hmm. sees you see her womanly body at the end, and he strangles her, and she can't speak anymore at the end of it, and she's like, right. like reduced to writing on notepads. And mm -hmm. she loses a lot of her power, and a lot of people leave, and 
Chief uh, Bromden, don't knock everything over. Chief Bromden uh, escapes, you know, and it's it's hard to talk about this book and because of the narration, right? Like because it is told from a supposedly mute and oh, a guy who presents himself as mute and dumb, and he is telling us the story, most of it in the per- in the in the present tense. And then, so we have to go through how he views everything. And he is in a, he's not altogether sane. Mm. So how much we can, like, I, I think that allows the writer to get away with some of the issues I have with the book in that, like, the, there's a lot of terrible exposition, like that one line I read. God damn it, Harding. Stop it right. with the shop talk. Tell it to me straight. And the fact that, McMurphy is a wholly unbelievable character, in my opinion. Like, he's too much of a cartoon. He's too... He's madcap. He's madcap. Yeah, it's like he's... Yeah, there's something... Yeah, unreal it, about mm-hmm. his choix de vivre, as it were, you know? Yeah, and, and you can... I feel the writer's hand in a lot of the scenes where he's in the battle with Miss Ratchet, and Miss Ratchet has no humanity whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, it's... And I I get like there's a lot of symbolism and there's a lot of metaphor going on and it's about society's controlling aspects on us. But that stuff just, especially in the beginning, just kind of grates and kind of keeps me out of it. And it made it hard to read. You can see from reading Nurse Ratchet's parts in the novel, though, like how perfect Louise Fletcher was in the movie as Nurse Ratchet. Like see why she got an Academy Award. It's just most of her facial characterizations are, mm. are just uncannily austere. Mm. Like no, no empathy. Almost a, almost like a godlike otherness to her face. Like how how mm. a god would be if it was in flesh around mere around uh, these sort of perceived degenerates and crazy people and stuff like this kind of detachment that's almost otherworldly just perfect mm-hmm. casting yeah it's no accident it's the academy award for that I, I, well, I, I don't remember I, I think i saw the movie long ago but the one thing i noticed about this book and i'm glad you brought up the movie it feels like it should have been a movie and not a book mm-hmm. a lot of the mm-hmm. dialogue i'm like this might work in film but it doesn't work to me really well, you can have a greater appreciation I did anyway of how good Quentin Tarantino is at writing dialogue mm-hmm. just in general. I mean, Tarantino's dialogue in the worst of his movies is better than all the dialogue in, in this book. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. Just, it's just so forced. A lot of it. It's just, it's weird. It was a slog. I couldn't do it. Yeah. It was too badly written. How far did weird. you get? How far did you oh, get? I didn't, even, I didn't even break the first third. I didn't even get the, Oh, the beginning, the, the beginning has like five starts to it too, which is odd. And people could just, you know what it is though. It's probably me. Like we don't, you know, people could read back then. They had better attention spans than we do now. My phone doesn't fucking mm-hmm. let up on. It. It's, it's yeah. impressive. You know what I mean? Like it's just my job doesn't let up on. Uh-huh. We have to work all the time now. We have to be on call all the goddamn time. You know, it's just it's it's. You know, there used to be more greater separation of personal life and occupational life back then, sure. and there were less just 
distractions. There were less distractions. So I get it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's certainly not as much of a slog as, let's say, you know, William Makepeace Thackeray's Vanity Fair or mm-hmm. even some novels by the great Dickens that take a long ass time to get oh, going. Yeah. Yeah, Dostoevsky's *The Idiot* too is wearisome at first. It's, it's so, hard. It's hard. It's like seventy pages on a train. So geez, <laughs> I, I love Dostoevsky. It's very hard to read *Idiot*. Cut the *Idiot* cover to cover. Very hard. There's all these characters with a thousand different names, and you're trying to. Who's this dude again? What? What, yeah. what is this? Yeah, no, it's one a, guy. One guy reads a poem for like fifty pages as he's dying. <laughs> Reading a poem as he's dying, it's like Jesus, and no one's listening to him. They're like making fun of him, mm-hmm. and he, oh, it's awful. It's but, like fifty pages of hell. But yeah, but you know, it's not. In other words, there's better dialogue written in movies than there is in mm-hmm. this book. It could have been better, but, but the thing is, it is from the point of view of this like seven foot man, half Native American, who pretends to be d- dumb and mute, which. Casey, I mean, he was 24. Casey Mm -hmm. was writing this book on, like, easy mode, in a way, right? Like, if you were going to pick a narrator to tell a story in first person, deaf and dumb, who's always allowed to access to any room, any time, and nobody cares what they say around him, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like it's it's not... I mean, I'm not belittling it, because it is a good device, but it is not the... You could have picked a harder narration to tell the story. And maybe, and I'm not saying necessarily you should because writing's hard to begin with. <laughs> but I'm just pointing it out that it's kind of like writing on easy mode. He didn't pick a harder way to tell the story, which I thought was, you know, noteworthy, maybe. Maybe you disagree. I don't know. Why was, why was McMurphy in there in the first place in the, in the loony bin? Okay. Oh, he was there because he kind of he, yeah. he was on a work farm, right? Mm-hmm. And he kind of got himself transferred to the loony bin because he thought it would be easier. And he tells them he thinks, and he tells the the men that you know, like, oh, well, uh, I heard that you guys have money, and I'm gonna fleece you guys, and I was done fleecing those guys, sort of. And that was his attitude. But the reason why he went to jail is because he slept with like a 13 year old. Oh, and he geez. got into a fight. And he's like, there is a lot of issues with, this is kind of a sexist and racist book in a way. And I don't know if she's 13, but he says, I didn't know her age. Like the book kind of defends the action in a way saying that he didn't know her age and that the girl wanted him more than he wanted her. And that, and he jokes about wanting to be in the loony bin just to stay, keep her away from him. But mm-hmm. she's an, a minor. And he got into some sort of fight or whatever. And like, it's not, it, it, and I was curious about that because it doesn't play as well now as maybe it would back then. Now you're kind of like, boy. Choosing to make a you know, guy who slept with a 13 year old, a mm. full adult who slept with a 13 year old mm. as your protagonist. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> you just well, if you did it nowadays, there'd, there'd be some kind of, comeuppance for him for it you know mm. I, maybe she was older like I don't know if she was 13 but I remember she was a, a minor and he says that she looks older and it's just kind of re- like this is also around like when did Nabokov come out right oh I know so, yeah. so Nabokov is, 50s and 60s and yeah same as this right so this is the same age but the way they brush this off 
is is not like it's it's the way like we looked at crime and we looked at these issues differently back then. I suppose I don't know. I wasn't there. I Me mean, probably not even that not that long ago. We took it as a joke, statutory rape. Uh, but um, so yeah, that's why he's in there, and uh, and we just keep going. And women in this book are treated as like the prostitutes, or the the. It, or, or they are the part of the machine that keeps you down. And the only woman that has really anything other than that is this woman they keep calling the Jap nurse who comes in at the end of the book. And oh, excuse geez. my for being, but she's like kind and lovely. And at one point, I even write it down. She says, um, oh, hold on. It's a fucking computer. Uh, I don't want that to happen. Can you hear me all right? We're back. Yeah, so stupid computer. Um so what happens in yeah, thank you. Um and so the women are either these whores or or and treated as such or parts of the machine. And the book is about male masculinity masculinity a lot of the time. My hot take of the episode is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the 1960s Fight Club. It's all about the same issues, about, you know, the systems of the control that keep us down. It's about men being men and finding their masculinity again. They always talk about, you know, uh, getting bigger, you know, like you got to be big. You got to be a man at the end. He says, we're no longer mice or whatever it is. We're no longer bunnies. We're men. That's what McMurphy gave to us. Gave us our manhood bat. And there's a lot of similar themes between the two books in that uh, has to do with mental illness, for one. It has yep. to do with issues of societal control that keeps us, you know, in line. And if you don't fit these systems, you are, you know, outsiders. And, um, and it deals with femininity and masculinity kind of in similar ways. So that, that's my... That's my uh, literary essay of the episode <laughs> hmm. what um so do you think do you think it's a good book no not really mm-hmm. it gets better but like it's way too juvenile in a lot of ways the fact that it really pissed me off so at the end of the first chapter and and it doesn't take its setting seriously and the fact that um mcmurphy on his first day on the war they're lying in bed together and the chapter ends with him going huh i thought you couldn't hear brom chief and like he's on the ward for one day no one else has picked up in the fact that this guy's been lying about not hearing and not being able to speak for 20 years and this one mcmurphy guy comes on and picks it up, you know, like that was just a little hackneyed, a little like, and there's no other indication until the end that maybe somebody else might hear him, but that's after he starts speaking and obviously communicating with people. And it's just, it's not literature in the way that The Great Gatsby is literature. It's a Mm -hmm. piece of its time though. It very, very much is a book of the 1960s. It's iconic in that way. You know, mm. like you couldn't, the way that they, 
you know, their hijinks. And it's like, there's this aspect of, even though MASH was made later, like this aspect of MASH in it, you know, where like there's these guys in uniforms, they're crazy, they're going out, they're stealing boats, they're getting hookers and, you know, trying to get one over the man. There's this like catch-22 humor to it. There's, it's very much of its time, but it's not a, it's not a good book. It's, yeah. it's not up there. Like, it, it's not on my bookshelf in heaven. <laughs> Stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stupid. But, yeah. Well, it's so. Well, like, 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 you take, you know, another book written a little later, 10 years later, but Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, Hunter S. Thompson. And mm. it's all over the place, right? It's mm. just, it's completely disjointed, but it's amazing. It's better. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so his he 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 has such a grasp of the poetry of the language. Mm-hmm. His metaphors are rich and interesting and, and effective and and he has this uncanny ability to make you laugh while you're in awe at the same time. You know, he has mm-hmm. it's just it's his writing is so fucking good that even though it's all over the goddamn place, you know, you first of all there is a message you can draw from it, right? But Mm. Uh, but it's 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 even though it is confusing at times it's just it's great mm-hmm. you know it just it just depends yeah and you know ken kesey was 24 you know no it's 24 i mean it's amazing this is an amazing work for a 24 year old i think even yeah you know um, and he made this afterwards right which is supposed to be really good i haven't read it sometimes a great notion mm. Which is yeah, I've been wanting to read that. I've been wanting to read that. I have, I'm having the bad habit of reading books I've already read, mm. which is great, maybe for that. But I, I, I why am I not reading new ones? I don't know why not. I don't know why. It's a commitment, anyway. right? Time. Mm. You want to make sure what you read yeah. is worth, like enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know, like, like picking up this again. It wasn't. I would have put it down if it wasn't for our podcast necessarily. Uh, and there's a lot of religious imagery in it too like there's a reason why it's mcmurphy and his 12 merry men at the mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and he dies and he comes back three weeks later after he lobot- oh. after they lobotomize him in like three days and um and there's a judas character in it the one that kind of gives him out at the end which is like it's it's not fully that way but it, it's written to evoke those ideas he is their savior you know he gave mm-hmm. them so and that's not in defense of the book that's just commenting on stuff i noticed you know mm-hmm. i don't know it's not what what had you heard about this book before we read it i really hadn't heard much i i mm. just you know i i heard that that ken kesey was apparently not happy with the movie um Mm. he felt it wasn't, he felt certain things that he had done that should have translated onto the screen did not. But I, that's, that's kind of common, right? I, yeah. I don't know how many, how many writers are satisfied with what is put on screen. I'm not sure mm-hmm. unless they have a hand in making it like Cormac McCarthy did with uh, no country for old men. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, it's practically reads like the Coen brothers wrote it. And, and vice versa you know what i mean it's, 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 it's so they're so they had a similar uh view of west texas i think right uh, yeah the three of them 
I don't know. I hadn't heard much. I hadn't uh. heard much. And yeah, my I'm biased against books written in America, novels written in America after the war. It's not fair. It's just I don't I don't typically I don't know when I was when I was first coming into loving books, I gravitated toward obviously Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, Sherwin Anderson, mm-hmm. Carson McCullers, and uh, Frank Norris, people like that. Or, you know, pre-war, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I guess I guess I just didn't find postmodernist literature. Very appealing. I don't know if this is an example of postmodernism, though. One who flew of the cuckoo's nest. It's not really. No. Modernist, late modernist, or something like that. But um, no, I hadn't heard much about. It. How about you? I just I mean, knew. You know, when, did you first, when did you first read it? And why? What? What compelled you? High school. Uh, probably well, just because, because of like the 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 on, attitude. On your own, it wasn't part of the curriculum. Yeah, yeah, it was just me. Oh, like I was trying to pick up, you know, I I was like a illiterate hockey player, and I knew of this book, and I knew they made a movie of it, so it's got to be good. And I picked it up, and I remember liking it. But I also wasn't a very good reader then. I probably skipped a bunch of it or didn't understand it. Like I, like the fog scenes. I can't imagine myself reading those fog scenes. There's there's scenes in the book where like Bromden talks about fog taking over and seeing the machinery and all this kind of stuff and I I didn't like it now and probably back then I probably couldn't focus long enough to get it straight, you know, because it's not it's it's not. June Didion made an interesting observation about about the Boomer generation. Mm. She wrote it actually very quite early. It was in Slouching Toward Bethlehem, which is one of her earliest nonfiction works, or one of her early journalistic pieces, if you will. Um, so we're talking 68, 1968, I think, when she wrote it, or published it. And she said that this generation had rejected the game before anyone had taught them the rules. And I think that's really interesting, mm. really interesting. You know, how, what, what compelled the 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old members of a generation to run away to San Francisco? Just run away to San Francisco. What compelled them to leave Laredo and Tulsa and, mm. and Camp Boise? What compelled them all to just leave and go to San Francisco or leave and go to New Orleans? You know, or we'll even go to Austin. What compelled them all to do that? You know, it's this idea that perhaps, perhaps their parents did a bad job of raising them, telling them the game. You know, could be. So, I don't want to. I mean, I don't want to cook and clean. Fuck that. I don't uh-huh. want to. But there's something about cooking and cleaning that everyone should know about. It's interesting. You know, well, it's, this, it's like this is the generation that. Where, where cities started to grow too, right? Like farming, industrialization. Oh, they, started, they, started, they started to decline. Yeah. This period. They started a serious decline. This is the rise of the suburbs this time period. That's, oh, so. sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to... City, city centers are rotting from the inside in, around mm-hmm. this time. Okay. And that, that's the causes for that are manifold. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
you know, it's 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 just weird. It's just weird, very weird thing to have the young people full of despair enough where they did not, they could not love home. Many of them, not all of them, of course. Mm. But, I'm trying to wrap my head. I'm thinking. I read something recently that was touching on this issue, mm-hmm. and, and I just can't. Uh, I can't put my finger on. Maybe I had something to do with Biden. I was reading it. It's, it's about the these people are probably the children of. They're the silent generation. They're the lucky few. They're the ones that were born into a plethora of jobs that they could stay at forever if they chose to. Or maybe yeah. those are their parents. Uh, to be a smarter man than me would be a gift. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, in hindsight, we can see that the white baby boomers are probably the most privileged people to ever live, mm-hmm. ever, you know, as a, as a group. It's, it's you know, it's... I, I, they're they didn't maybe they didn't know it then how do you know you can't have that kind of perspective then you know how both you know i'm sure folks back then thought that the united states would just continue to uh, enfranchise more of its people and mm. uh have jobs have meaningful jobs for more of its people jobs that could retire on jobs that could secure and and we just keep continuing on in that trend that's probably what the perspective was back then so they probably didn't even know how good they had it right but that tells us that they had it better than anyone else, even us, mm-hmm. and certainly Gen Gen Generation Y kids and stuff like that, who really aren't. Many of them cannot even look forward to a career, even if they're qualified for one. That's that's. I think that because of where we are, these books written in this time period are all going to have this veneer of like, why are you complaining? Like, what do you, what what's so bad? <laughs> You know, yeah. like yeah. Uh, that's how I, honestly, that's how I feel about 2020. <laughs> it's like I want to say to some people, like I get it, it's, it sucks. This is very bad that you can't go to a fucking Kenny Chesney concert. It's terrible. I get it, but the electricity's still on. Mm. Like electricity's still on. There's still food. The supply chains are open. Like what are we? It's bad compared to what it was before, but it's not bad. Yeah, it's not capital B bad. It's not fucking 1994 Rwanda bad, you know. It's not. It's not 1918 bad. It's you know what I mean. Like this bad. How much of the world just normally lives without these things, Mm -hmm. and just how much of the world normally lives without these things, and is constantly fearful of being sick? I know. A good deal. A good deal. A lot more than we would care to think about. And hopefully, Mm -hmm. this will. Give us all compassion and want to help out our fellow brothers and sisters. It already does. I mean, it already has. So many businesses in America, especially restaurants, are surviving because their the, their patrons are, are are tipping huge, tipping way more than they mm-hmm. they normally did. There's private charities that are organized, right? You know, GoFundMe things. I mean, people are giving to one another in this time. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's going underreported. You could argue that, but. You know, it's it's not it's not yeah. catastrophic. It's not cat for 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 people who get it. It is. So I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not saying that there's nothing bad going on. Of course there is, but I just wish people could realize that this this is fucking life. This is this shit happens. This shit happens. In fact, mm. it happens 
far more than we'd be comfortable admitting. God's sake, the electricity's still on. God, be grateful. I don't know. Infrastructure still works. Mm-hmm. There's, there's still, yeah. I can't go to a fucking, I can't go to a Carrie Underwood concert. Oh, boo fucking who? Blow <laughs> the fuck up. Like, you know what I mean? Like, really? <laughs> have, you, have you heard people complain about I Carrie? I can't Underwood? have a wedding. Who's <laughs> uh-huh. the fuck? You're going to be divorced in 20 years anyway. Who's the fuck? <laughs> Statistically. Mm. That that does irk me. I mean, I didn't. I I, I feel like I can't. It was a wedding in Ohio. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I didn't I have a wedding. I never wanted a wedding. So for me to be like, dude, don't have a wedding is kind of like saying like, I already think that the the party is kind of silly and a little self centered. So you know, let's carry on. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic, oh. Brad. I'm trying to be diplomatic. But yeah, <laughs> we're our own podcast. See what the hell you want. We can't get fired. We're our own bosses. Say it, uh, uh, dude. You, you don't know what the anxiety I have. I want to find myself all the time. But yeah, weddings are super weird. <laughs> super. Well, super there's weird. that one in Ohio. They had like uh, 83 people in attendance, and like a third of them have COVID. It's like Jesus Christ. Of course. <laughs> we can joke you know, about it, but it's it also really crazy. sad. It's really, really sad. But yeah, it's it's like like those gender reveal parties that started forest fires that scorched half of California. Oh, Jesus Christ, I know. Whoa, is this a party? I can't have a party. Whoa, is this America? I can't, have, I can't <laughs> throw a fucking cigarette in the brush? What, what, what? How was I supposed to know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and on that note, ladies and gentlemen. That's a, that's a hurry. That's a crazy story for a grandkid, isn't it? The guy's out of that fire. Yeah. He's telling his grandkid, he's showing him old footage. Hey, look, hey, look, see that? I started that. Oh. <laughs> or, or that, or you, like you're out for a walk with your grandkid across this ashen, barren land. And Dad, what used to be there? Well, son, that used to be rolling okay. fields of like vineyards and, and, and luscious fields, but somebody wanted to shoot a firework off to know what genitalia their kid had so now we have <laughs> this enjoy that's wow. been <laughs> amazing you lived in strange times pa yes we did we oh. did indeed <laughs> that's how they talk in california right <laughs> paul paul oh, that there's a scorched landscape <laughs> All right, let's sign off quick let's before we up. alienate people. Yeah, and I got I, I, I got to go jet, get to the writing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Boozing. Follow us, like us, tweet us. Email us at boozingthroughlittlegmail.com. Next week, we got on the docket. Nettle. Let me get my mask out of the way. Nettle by Joy Williams. We'll see you about next week. Hopefully next week. Until then, I'm Daryl. He's Brett. We're Boozing. Back at you. Keep scribbling.